Anyways, I'd like to begin this morning by just asking, um, so much has happened this week. And I, I know so much has happened this week. One of the habits that we have to maintain in order to practice our faith the way that we're called to is that we allow ourselves, despite what is going on in the world, in our community, and in our own lives, that we allow ourselves to stop. That's, that is the reason that we come together on the first day of the week, not just so that we can worship together in the communal sense or so that we can share in community and, and enjoy unity with the body of Christ, so that we can celebrate and praise alongside one another and be encouraged But part of it is simply building into our lives the discipline of stopping. I'm aware that this hasn't been an easy week for everyone. All of us, though, should come at this time ready to worship. We start our services with songs so that we can hear each other singing beside us as we lift up our voices to God. And we do that. Um, simply so that our hearts would be prepared to open up to God's word. That we would empty out everything that's inside of us, all of our burdens, so that as we come to God, we would be an empty vessel ready for him to speak into our lives. One of the ways that we do that is through song, but we can also do that through prayer. And before we turn to our uh, verse of focus this morning, I ask that we would do just that. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time that we have to come together and to worship alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I pray that as we come to you, that our focus would be on ourselves, that we would know how best to respond to your word. God, that we would hear your voice and that we would understand your truth. God, we know all spiritual truth comes from you and that we're not capable of understanding it on our own, that we have to rely on your spirit in order to guide us into all wisdom and understanding. And so, Lord, we ask that you would not withhold yourself from us this morning, that as we come to you, that we would have a moment of refuge and of peace to know that you are here with us as you are always with us and to seek your understanding now. As we open up to your Lord law, Lord God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to the wonderful truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 all the way through verse 16. As I read out loud, I pray that you would open up your Bibles to read along with me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So far as we've moved through the book of Ephesians, we've kind of paid attention to the shifts that the Apostle Paul makes in writings, the different changes and focus that is that he puts on different um, components of our worship. And he starts out in chapter 1, obviously very doctrinally, talking about what has happened in our salvation, reminding every believer that he writes to, um, reminding them of who they were before they were saved. That there's a depravity born inside of every man that without God cannot ever reach a place of righteousness or, or even restoral. And then he comes back and he starts to develop on this doctrine. What is so great about the salvation that we have in Christ? Simply that God has taken the initiative. That he has transformed us. And in fact, we are so separated from this old self that we don't even identify as who we once were anymore. In fact, our identity is completely wrapped up in the Savior that has made it possible for us to know Him. This begins to have implications. And as we start to apply this, and Paul starts to apply this for his readers, if you're a Christian, and because Christ has identified with you, taking the form of death on the cross, a sinner's punishment. He is identified with you. And you've identified with him. Well, so too also that means that you have identified with his entire body. That, that in application of this wonderful doctrine of regeneration and rebirth that we find in the beginning of Ephesians... There is an entire community that we have identified with, that the body of Christ is one. And this is where we've spent a lot of our focus over the past couple weeks. As Paul says, not only is this unity there, but it's incredibly important that you maintain it. And we're about to see why it's so important. He gives us the, the, the development of this idea, giving us the basis of this unity, calling attention to the basis of the unity in the Trinity. One spirit and one body, one Lord who is Christ, one God and Father. And he establishes there that this body is one, that we are one with God because the spirits come to dwell within us. And, and we see how wonderful all of this starts to play out and starts to be. When verse 7 Paul transitions. And so this is a major shift, and we have to pay attention to it. His focus is no longer on the whole body of Christ. But now his focus is on the individual. He's just made a move, and he's talking about you. 
Not everyone who sits on the pew with you or not everyone who's in this room, but he's talking about each individual. The, the, the illustration that we have to see the, the trees from the forest, we're now looking at the trees. And he begins to develop what is so amazing about celebrating this unity. We've made the point so far in our study that this unity that is in the body does not trivialize or make light of the fact that we all are unique and individual. In fact, it does the opposite. It celebrates it. So as we look at this passage this morning, we see how our uniqueness is actually celebrated. I want to give you some help to understand what we're looking at. This is a long passage of Scripture to look at, especially coming off of looking at one verse at a time. And so I want to give you the main points that we'll be looking at. They all begin with P's. The purpose of individuality. The purpose of individuality. The problem with individuality the premise of individuality, and finally we'll look at the provocation of individuality. First, let's look at the purpose. Because we can't get away from where we've just come. We spent a lot of time emphasizing the uh, necessity and the importance of the unity in the body. If we get too far away from that as we start looking at the trees, so to speak, or this individual component, we're going to run into an issue The first point we come to as Paul transitions from encouraging unity in the church to the foundation of that unity to a focus on the individuality of each member is that there is a purpose for our unity. Pay attention. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And there's a purpose for it. If you jump to verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've so far in our study, at least since coming to chapter 4, emphasized this unity that that exist within the body of Christ and that we've even emphasized that it doesn't undermine our uniqueness. So much so that we should pay careful attention to the way that God chooses to work in us as unique individuals. Notice what it means in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 7, when it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ultimately, we're talking about spiritual gifts. And so just to give us kind of a simple framework to hang our discussion on this morning, when a believer is saved, he know, he's no longer this old self. He becomes this new self. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell within them, and they are a new creation in Christ. Now, as this new creation, the Holy Spirit is actually able to work through them. This is amazing. If you spend any length of time thinking about this, God, 100% God, works through this flawed sinner. And he begins to work through him in different ways. And we call this spiritual gifts, and we see this all throughout scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12 gives us this. Uh, Romans 12 also gives us a picture of the spiritual gifts. And here in Ephesians 4, we see something different. The, The list doesn't line up as well. 
But also we see this purpose for it. First, that it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's according to what God decides uh, we're going to be used for. That the talents that we bring to ministry do not come from ourselves, but they come from, through, and in Christ. Remember, Paul probably wouldn't have asked people, are you a Christian or are you saved? He would have asked, are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? And Paul even begins to explain it. This picture of the deliverance or this gifts that are given to men is referenced all the way back in Psalm 68. And that's what he quotes when he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Hey, something interesting that he does here, though, he misquotes it. In studying that, I've got to ask some questions. This is the Apostle Paul. He just misquoted Scripture. Did Scripture mess up? No, I have to say it's good enough for me that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul was able to quote Psalm 68 in the way that he did. And I understand what he's doing here because this quote isn't so much a direct pull from the psalm. Instead, he's actually summarizing everything that takes place. This picture of a, uh, of a war general, really, or a military leader coming in and becoming victorious and sharing with all those that he delivers everything that he has. Psalm 68 is the victor sharing the spoils of conquest. And in this picture, of course, Christ is the victor. All of us are the captives, not his enemy, but we're we're the captives of the enemy. Bound in sin, rescued and delivered through Christ's victory, and then he shares with us all of the spoils. Victory over death is shared with us in the power that we have over death. The indwelling of the Spirit within us, and now even these spiritual gifts. The way God is going to choose to work through us. Now, there's a lot of ways. Paul gives us some commentary in verse 9. And it gets confusing, right? So it says, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. This is Paul's commentary on Psalm 68. And there's really three ways that we can understand this. If we look at the language and we start to break it apart, it can mean one of three things. One, that Christ descended and we know this to be true in his incarnation at Christmas. He ascended from heaven to earth that he would become the incarnate Christ in earth and for the purpose of becoming the perfect uh, propitiation of sin. Second, we could say that after Jesus died and was crucified on the cross, that he then descended into, um, I think Hades is a good way to say it, after his death and then later ascended. Third, we could say that Christ descended into the grave and then was resurrected physically into the lower regions of the earth through the grave that he was given. Knowing that there's three ways to interpret this, we have to choose which one makes the most sense. And the way that we do that is we look at what else is being talked about in the passage. I note this victor conquered death. 
How did Jesus conquer death? But that he died on a cross and was buried into a grave. At that moment, death was conquered. The rage of God was satisfied. The sins of the entire earth were satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Now the victor comes in more ways than that. It's on Easter when he's resurrected that we see the true testimony and our affirmation that, yes, death has been satisfied because Jesus was resurrected. Knowing that, the understanding of Paul's commentary in verses 9 and 10 that makes the most sense is that Christ descended into the grave when he died and he was ascended on Easter when he was resurrected. That's what makes the most sense to me in the context of what we have read so far and the point that Paul is drawing out from this. Now, I said that first that we should note that the spiritual gifts and talents that we bring to ministry do not come from us. To make this distinction abundantly clear, everyone who is here was born with certain talents. There's things that you are good at. For example, Michelle is a very fast reader. That comes from her physical abilities and other things. She's good at reading. I am a very slow reader. That is not a natural talent that I have. I cannot say that Michelle's um, reading acumen comes from the Holy Spirit within her. That comes just from the way that God created her. That has nothing to do with the way that she's supposed to work in ministry or even serve the church or even be a part of the church. Everything that is within us that relates to how we are supposed to serve the church comes from God, because Jesus is the victor in conquering death. He is the general. He is the commander who decides how to distribute these gifts, or these charis in Greek, these gifts. Second, I would like to emphasize the purpose of these gifts is not for our own self-aggrandizement or self-glory. Rather, they're portioned out according to how God intends to use us. In fact, we could even apply from this that looking at spiritual gifts, that if a Christian really wanted to know their spiritual gifting or really have an understanding of how God is going to use them, that it's necessary that they be involved in the church. Where did you get that, Brother Derek? That was kind of a strange thing to say. I haven't really developed this idea for you yet, have I? The purpose that this is pointing to is that the body of Christ would grow, that the saints would be equipped. The reason Christians have all of these things is because the individual is actually a gift to the church. Jesus' functioning in this is that, that not only is he going to, through these spiritual gifts, make some prophets and evangelists and um, pastors and shepherds and teachers but that all of these different gifts being referenced are going to be used in the church to equip the saints. They're going to be used in the church to help grow the body, to help take care of the needs that people have in order to be effectively ministered to. 
Well, that means that if you're trying to use these gifts in other areas of your life, it just won't work because that's not what they're there for. You may be gifted with shepherding or as a shepherd. And in, in such a situation, if you're trying to be a shepherd for um, those who are outside of Christ, you're not really using that spiritual gift the way that it's designed to be used or even for the purpose that God put that inside of you. If we really understand this context, it's pointing back to the unity that, that Paul establishes in the previous verses. The reason for spiritual gifting is the equipping of the saints for building up the body of Christ so that we may attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God that we would be made mature, that we would reflect the image of Christ, or as Paul says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That word equip, katartismos, is actually, if you look at the definition, it means to be completely furnished. Ministry, diaconia, or the word for service, or serving one another, or actually um, deacon, the word deacon comes from this, that, or diakonos, to be a servant. To be completely furnished in serving one another. What's it mean to be completely furnished? I think back to my first apartment whenever I moved out, and I loved that apartment. It was so cool. It was 500 square feet of awesome. And it didn't matter because I didn't have any furniture except for, you know, the couple of things that I was like, hey, one day I'm going to move out. And so, we, you know, just being practical, there's some things I should buy. So like one year I bought some pots and pans, never opened up the box, put it in the closet. One day I'll use that. Got a, uh, the coffee table, you know, these kinds of things, they just kind of accrued, but no couch. In that first apartment in the first days, it was lawn furniture, which I didn't know would scuff up the floors and cause, me, cause us to, to lose the security deposit. We had the, the building, but it wasn't fully furnished. It didn't have everything it needed to be a home. And remember that that building is serving one another. We can have a church and it not be completely furnished. Simply because the individuals in that church, either one, aren't fully submissive to God in allowing Him to work through them. Two, because that church isn't allowing other people to serve the way that they've been called to. You start to see how big the implications are from this that we would be able to understand our spiritual gifting. Not only that, but understand how they're meant to be used. For building up the body of Christ. Building up, uh, oikodome, is the word for edifying. This isn't just 
Some of you might go to the gym. I've, there's a guy that I discipled a couple years ago, and he went to the gym, and he, uh, he invited me to go with him. I made it two weeks, and as soon as we got to leg day and I couldn't stand up on my own, I was out. That kind of building up isn't the kind of building up that Paul talks about here. Edifying is the building up of our understanding. Now, it's not just intellectual, right? Because we, we've got to be careful with that. We can, in the church, we can be really focused on our understanding of doctrine and the teachings of God. That is not what he's talking about here. Because the understanding that he's talking about isn't understanding in our brain. It's understanding in our heart. You don't believe me? Well, look at the next sentence so that we may attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge. That word knowledge there would cause some to point, you know, specifically to the kind of knowledge that's happening in their head. And I've already, you know, been on plenty of time in the Greek. I'm sure I've totally lost many of you. But if you can just hang on for a second, the word for knowledge in the Greek actually has a distinction that we don't have in English. You've heard the word agnostic. It means that somebody doesn't know what they believe, right? To describe somebody who doesn't know what they believe about God. The word for knowing in there is gnosko. They're agnostic, they're gnosko. A means they don't, gnosko means they know. So they don't know. The word for knowledge used in this passage is not gnosko which means it's not pointing to what's going on in our brain. It's epigenosco. Epigenosco. Okay, it's the same word, but it has the prefix, epi. What's epi mean in Greek? And everyone said, I don't know. Well, think about it. We just experienced this. Didn't we have a world epidemic and then a pandemic? Epi means far-reaching. Growing beyond. When Paul writes that we should have this understanding of the faith or, or may attain the unity of the faith and the beyond knowledge of the Son of God, we start to see that these spiritual gifts playing into things is that we would have a knowledge that goes beyond knowledge that only exists in our hearts. The purpose of our gifting ultimately points to this feat that each person in the entire church would be built to complete maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't have my spiritual tape measure with me today, but I think perfection is pretty difficult to achieve. If we understand Christ as perfection, and we do because he was, the, he was God incarnate on earth, then, well, that means that, wow. What a difficult feat that the church exists so that the saints, all those who believe in Christ, all those who are in Christ, who are part of this unified body, would become perfect like Christ. 
that we would have an understanding of who Jesus is that goes beyond what we're capable of knowing in our minds. The entire church says, yeah, that's what I want, and that's what I want the church to look like, and and I want every time that I am in the presence of another believer to be experiencing this type of building up. Just like when I go to the gym, I want to experience my heart drawing near to God in such a way that I have a knowledge that surpasses what I'm capable of understanding in my brain. That I have a love that is so experientially present, other people see it and are aware of it. And the entire church says, yeah, that's what I want the church to look like. How do we make that happen? It's simple. By yielding to the way that God has already decided the church should work, that we should maintain the the spirit of unity that is within us, yielding to the way that God works in individuals, allowing other individuals to serve so that the church may be complete in its service, being completely furnished or perfected. Applying the scripture appropriately, we have to realize that a Christian who is exceptionally resolute and steadfast in their study and their understanding of God, even in their understanding of Scripture, even in their disciplines, will be unable on their own to accomplish the task that the all-knowing, all-powerful God ordained necessary for others to be a part of. Did you hear what I just said? doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how mature you are in your faith, how much you know about God, how much you know the Bible, how much you understand the Bible. A Christian who decides to go on their own will never be able to fulfill what God has called them to fulfill. Why? Because God Himself all-knowing, all-powerful, decided that it would be necessary to gift the church with the apostles and prophets and shepherds and teachers, that the church may be built up, literally buff in the faith. If an all-knowing, all-powerful God determines that it's necessary, how necessary do you think it is? If we're to apply the scripture correctly, we have to realize how important it is that we rely on the body of Christ. Not only that, but how our individuality points towards recognizing with the whole body. This brings us, I think, to the problem of individuality. When our understanding of the importance of individuality becomes perverted or distorted either by the world that we live in and or an insufficient understanding of the whole counsel of God found in Scripture, rather than being the very thing we celebrate this morning in our text, it becomes a source that is actually a great issue. The problem of individuality is addressed in the contrast description right after Paul tells us what we have all of these gifts for. He says... Um, If you would look at verse 14, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is an awful description of, for a Christian. We're not talking about those who are outside of Christ anymore. We're talking about as a Christian that we could be childish, that we could be self-reliant, that we could be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that we could be self-deceiving if we put too much attention on who we are as an individual. Think about this, childish. Literally, the Greek word for childish means not speaking or unable to speak. In this description, we understand that what Paul's describing is not just spiritual adolescence, but spiritual infancy. Unable to care for yourself, unable to see, unable to make decisions. And in that kind of perspective, I love my, my children, but you guys know neither one are, they're both unregenerate little sinners. And I love them to death. But those unregenerate little sinners think that the entire world revolves around them. So many Christians are the same way. Michelle and I went for a walk yesterday, trying our hardest to have a good Saturday. There were a group of girls playing basketball on a driveway, and as we walked by, Charlotte, because the world revolves around her, says, I can't wait to go play basketball with these girls who are not interested in two-year-old me. Not only that, but mom and dad are trying to walk and would like to keep walking. She had a full meltdown. We got home, and we were getting ready to take her to bed, and I think about everything that she sees. The whole world, from her perspective, really does revolve around her. She comes to church on Sunday, and you all love her way too much. You are setting her up for unrealistic expectations in the real world. So many Christians have the same perspective because they come to church services and they're served or they're fed. So many Christians have the same expectations that the pastor would care for them or be ready to be there for them as soon as they need something. Instead of realizing that part of their spiritual maturity is actually yielding to Christ, more to the point that they would have an awareness of how God has called them to be used. And that they would be dedicated to be the one that is serving. The completeness or the fullness of maturity or equipping or the, the, the whole um, completely furnishing of our service in the church is that everyone would be being used. Uh-oh. That we wouldn't be so childish that we think that everything revolves around us. That we wouldn't be unable to speak for ourselves. Because part of that childish perspective also results in being tossed to and from by every wind of doctrine. We live from a pastor's perspective 
in a dangerous world where you know, Jesus describes the wolves that would come after the flock, the preachers who would develop prominence in this world who ultimately teach a false gospel, who teach a gospel that even tells people that if they would just rely on themselves more, that they would become more saved. That if you could make yourself more holy, you'd have a better relationship with Christ. And these kinds of messages are so abundant on social media, even on the news. Even Christians who were grazed to understand true scriptural um, interpretations and meanings and, and the way that all of these different things work are being carried away. first time I went to the beach, I, I, we talked about this recently, I don't remember why, but I remember Michelle, she was so excited the first time she got to see the beach, that, so it was the second time that I saw the beach. And she's like, I can't wait to go swimming in it. And I had some experiential knowledge that told me that that would actually not be so much fun or as relaxing as she thought that it would be. And I was, because the beach is not a fun place to swim. It's like going to war. Well, you're walking out there and you're getting hit in the face. And if you don't watch yourself, then you're going to get drugged down under. I'd rather stay by the pool. It's nice to look at, but I don't want to hang out there. I can only imagine what it would be like asking a child to go play in the beach. Because even for me, I mean, I'm pretty physically able. I can lift stuff up and jump and run. I've got decent balance. But you put me out there and I describe it as going to war. It's work. Just standing in the same spot. To be tossed to and from every wind of doctrine. The next description is that by human cunning that we would be deceived Really, I think this is a description of being self-reliant because it's our own human cunning that teaches us that if only we would understand the merits of the gospel well enough, we would have a better relationship with Christ. It's our own human cunning that makes it impossible for us to understand how simple the gospel is. The gospel is incredibly simple. You're a sinner. You deserve death. Everyone in the entire world was born a sinner. There's nothing they can do about it. We deserve, every, when, when, when we hear about hell and the descriptions and how dreadful it must be, we deserve that. God is perfect in all things. Even in becoming the sacrifice needed to take our place. And because he loved us, he did that. And someone sitting back, and I've seen this reaction so many times. But why did God do that? Okay, why does God do that for some and he doesn't do that to others? And, and all of this, and you're asking the wrong question. Why did he do it for you to begin with? Why did he do it for me to begin with? It is amazing. We did it because he loves you. Well, it can't be that simple. Why does he love me? He loves you because he loves you. 
in your own self-reliance, in your human cunning, we try to ask more questions than really need to be answered because it's already been explained. This is what God has done. In doing it, he's made it possible for anyone and everyone who would place their faith in Christ to have a real and genuine relationship with him. It gets more complicated than that when we start talking about spiritual disciplines and the way that we grow in Christ and the way that we rely on him. But that's really all that there is to it. And if we would hang on to that in our minds, actually all the spiritual disciplines are just pointing back to that so that we wouldn't, through our own self-reliance, become deceived through craftiness and deceitful schemes into thinking that it's more complicated than it is. Because if we fail to see our purpose as an individual in light of the collective, we will ultimately force ourselves to live in a very small world. As a consequence to failing to see what God has done in these spiritual gifts in the life of the individual, if we fail to see that, our growth as Christians will be jilted. Our effectiveness as a witness for Christ will become minimal. Our church will suffer. Indeed, the whole body of Christ will suffer. I hope you're sticking with me and that this hasn't been too dry this morning, but so far we've looked at the purpose of individuality in the church and the problem with individuality. These next two will go quickly. The premise of our individuality, that is, what is the driving factor behind all of this? Why is it even necessary? Is again this description of unity that we find. In verse 16, that we would, or actually beginning in the middle of verse 15, that we would grow into the head who is Christ from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The premise of our individual gifting working in terms of bringing the, the body of Christ up is that we are already one body that Christ is the head, and that we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When we fail to surrender in such a way or even acknowledge our responsibility to be involved in the service of the church, we are walking around lame. We have joints that won't move the way that they are supposed to. Arms that cannot lift above our heads. Legs that cannot stretch. Maybe another way to say that is when we have allowed ourselves to adopt such a view of ourselves that we do not think that we are capable of participating in church or that we don't see how he can be used in church because this, that, and the other, and I did this one time, and I'm no good at this, and everything else. We're actually paralyzing different parts of the body. We're actually standing in the way, more so than any enemy or adversary ever could, of the body of Christ being fully effective. That means caring for one another. That means reaching the lost. 
The last point. The provocation. How is it possible that the body could possibly do all of this? Paul gives us one of my favorite phrases. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Even if we look at the end of verse 16, the the body grows and builds itself up in love. Christians, I think we've focused on either one side of this or the other and, and missed the whole and what this phrase tells us. I think I've always attributed um, the quotation to Wearsby, but I was reading something by Wearsby this week, and he said it's, it's been rightly said and as if he were quoting somebody, but he didn't know who to quote, which leaves me in the position that I'm not sure that I'm giving credit to the right person. Anyways, I think it's Wearsby. When commenting on this phrase, speaking the truth in love, said that truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. These two words go side by side for an undeniably important message in understanding how all of us here this morning are supposed to build one another up. First is with truth. I think I just explained the gospel pretty well. And I started by saying that you are a sinner who deserves every description of hell you've ever heard and then some. Love hurts. I'm sorry, truth hurts. If there was no love in that, that would be a brutal message to deliver. Oh, and in some of our lives, it's not just in the gospel that we need to hear the truth, but it's in different areas of our life. You're struggling with this and you're struggling with that. Why are you so self-centered? Why do you walk around like a child who thinks that the entire world revolves around you? If there's no love in me saying that, that is a brutal message. It's totally true. In fact, to tell somebody the premise of hell and that all people are born into a sinful state and deserve hell without telling them the rest of the gospel, if there was not, in fact, the sacrifice of Christ, I would never tell anyone that truth. There'd be no reason for it. All of us are completely hopeless without Christ. If there was no sacrifice, if there was no atonement, if there was no availability of this propitiation that we speak of, it would be pointless to share that truth with anyone. Speaking truth without love is brutality. Still, the church would rather get involved in things that we have no business getting involved in so that we can proclaim the truth so vehemently, and I would even say venomously, that it tells the world that there is no love within the body of Christ. 
unless there is a redeeming element to what you say, there's no reason for you to share hate, hateful messages or even judgment or even condemning reminders with the world. And if you don't have the availability and the option or even the, um, the invitation to share the redeeming part of the truth, there's really no reason for you to share such truth. It's simply brutal. You would be better off praying for that opportunity where you would have an opportunity to not just share the truth, but to share love. On the other hand, so many people run away from this because they see how venomous and how hurtful and brutal the truth can be that they think that they would be better off simply to love the entire world. If we look at truth and we say truth without love is brutality, in fact, we can even say truth without love is not truth. When we look at love, I can also say love without truth is not love. Because if I know the condition of man, I know the destination of man, and I don't share that truth with people who need to hear it, I can't say that I love anyone. If Charlotte grows up and she continues to be as self-centered as she is as a two-year-old, and I don't tell her that. How can I say I love her? Because she's going to keep growing and she's going to go out into the world on her own. And if she's going to keep thinking that everything's about her. As a parent, if I did that, I don't love her. If my spouse was walking in sin... And I didn't tell her that what she was doing was harmful to her walk with God. How could I really say that I love her? I mean, I don't even care about her walk with God enough to tell her truth that's going to maybe hurt her. You know how I know who my good friends are? They're the ones who are faithful to wound me. My greatest friends are the ones that I can count on to tell me the truth no matter how much it hurts. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27, 6. Your enemies can kiss you. But it's a lie. And if we love someone without telling them the truth, it is as much a lie as an enemy giving you a kiss. <laughs> the answer to every issue that the church has come up against in the social age, whether we should tell the truth or whether we should love people, is that we cannot do one without the other. Love without truth is not love. Truth without love is not the truth. I'm so thankful for the work that God has done 
not only in my life, but I know in so many people who are here this morning. I've only been here, I've only been your pastor, I guess, a year and some change. And even in that time, I've seen spiritual growth. In, in different people, I have seen spiritual growth. We've had how many baptisms since I've been here? Five? Four? Five? Four? We've seen people make decisions that, that are life-changing and, and have the courage. People, and I think what's interesting is it's people who wouldn't normally have the courage to share that with an entire group of people that have followed in obedience to Christ to share that news with you. It's all for nothing if the body isn't fully functioning, doing everything that it needs to be doing, everything that it can be doing. When we talk about revival in America, if that's really what you want and that's really your desire, it starts in you. My generation is the generation of the unchurched or the leaving church generation. So a lot of my friends who grew up in church no longer go there. And then I'm the anomaly who didn't grow in a church who's now totally involved there. We're seeing less of my generation come into church or even understand it or see the value of it. What amazes me is when I ask those types of people why it is you left the church to begin with. Most of the response that I hear is that the church is not a place where a person can grow. It's toxic. It's like trying to plant, uh, plant a plant in, in acid. It's just... It's harmful. I'm better off going on my own. <clears throat> And what I'm amazed by is that there's a lot of truth in what they say. The church is not always a healthy place for us to grow. Sometimes the church has issues. Sometimes the church is unfunctional because we're so fixated on the way that we like to do things that we're not able to actually move on. That it, in a world where everything moves lightning fast and decisions can be made in, in jobs and secular world and everything else as crazy. The church only gets together four times a month on Sundays that we can actually make decisions. We move at a slower pace and, and everything else. There's a lot of truth into what those people say. What amazes me is, again, this childlike faith or childishness. Because if you're a part of something and you see that it's not working the way that it's supposed to, doesn't it make more sense that you would be the catalyst to making it work the way that it's supposed to rather than leaving it and abandoning it altogether? I mean, if somebody did that at a job, they just decided, hey, things aren't going well, I'm out, I would call them a coward. I would call them a quit. Probably not to their face, because there's no love in that. But, but I would definitely think it. The church is so important that God decided that it was necessary for Christians to be able to grow. 
that the unity of the church is so important, it was necessary for Christians to heal. In fact, look back at what we read in in Ephesians chapter 3. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church. When the church was first established during Jesus' earthly ministry on earth, angels in heaven were astonished. It is the greatest organism in the entire face of the planet. What's wrong with it? It's filled with a bunch of sinners who are empowered and enabled through the Holy Spirit to minister to one another. And if we'd really give in to that, if we'd actually yield to God and, instead of overthinking some of these things, we'd actually be able to experience it. I'm wrapping up. There's one other argument that I hear from people. They say that I don't feel connected to God anymore. I'm pretty sure that I was saved at one point in time, but since then I've grown up and I, I've, I've done all of these things and I just don't feel the presence of God in my life. I don't feel Him when I make decisions. And when I go to church, there's a nostalgia, but I don't know, I don't get that same feeling. This is the other problem with our individuality is that we think the problem cannot be with us. we understand who God is as the all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God who created the entire universe, He never leaves anyone. Christians who want to experience the Holy Spirit enabling them in such a way that they can use their gifts to minister to other people simply need to do one thing. To draw near to God. To desire to be with Him. Because if we're honest with ourselves, that's what holds us back. We'll sing a song of invitation in a moment. And I would ask you to respond to this message however you feel led. Um, First, I'd ask that we would pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and the way that it guides us and instructs us. Lord, I pray that you'd be with each one of us here today, that we would know how you're calling us to respond as an individual, that you would help us to see ourselves clearly from your perspective, and that you would help us to know how it is that we are supposed to be joined together and united to one another, how we are supposed to mature with one another, and what that looks like for us as a first step right now. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing number.